All right, we're looking at uh, the last chapter here, 1 Corinthians 16. We started chapter 1 27 lessons ago. Oh, there's 26 lessons. This is not lesson 27. I missed one week because of my wife's surgery, so this, I guess we had some offs for other things too, but this is the 27th lesson, and we hopefully will finish here today. It's called The Collection for God's People. Before we do, we have that quiz. Paul's fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus is not to be taken literally. Did he fight with actual wild beasts, do you think? Did he? No. So it's not to be taken literally, probably. No, we don't know. I don't know. You know, I wasn't there, but... um, if you fight with wild beasts, you usually don't come out telling the tale, generally, you know. David did pretty good. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, God doesn't always perform miracles every time somebody gets in, thrown into the arena or the Colosseum or something like that. Most Christians died if they were thrown in there. Uh, they all died, as a matter of fact. Two, our resurrection bodies will bear no resemblance to our present bodies. False. I didn't cover a lot of that, but I just said there's a continuity there between the two. We don't know exactly, you know, what the continuity is, but there is some continuity. Paul calls himself the second Adam. No. No. Christ is the second Adam, remember? Uh, The fact that the power of sin is the law suggests that the law is inherently evil. False. It's not that the law is evil. It's that we are evil. We are sinful in our natures, and so the law brings out, points out to us that we are transgressors. And it also stimulates, unfortunately, a rebellion. That's what laws do, because we're, and not because of the law, but because of what we are naturally. The resurrection should be an incentive to serve us now. True, that's what 58 is about. Chapter 16 here, we have the collection for the Lord's people in the first part, chapters 16, 1 through 11. This is the major part of the, of the chapter. The rest is closings. I say this chapter begins with the phrase, now about, which we have noted indicates that Paul is taking up an issue the Corinthians have asked him about in their letter to him. We saw that starting in 7-1. We've seen it probably throughout this section a number of times, but probably everything, we don't know for sure, but most everything has been related to that letter that they sent him. It appears that they are requesting additional information, additional instructions concerning their part in the collection for the poor in Jerusalem, especially how they are to go about, go about it and how it is to get to Jerusalem. Since these instructions included a word about his own coming to pick up the collection, as we'll see in verse 3, Paul includes some information about his own travel plans in connection with the visit in verses 5 through 9. This in turn reminds him that Timothy may very well be arriving in the meantime, so he includes a word about how they are to receive him in verses 10 and 11. Now this letter to the Corinthians was written about A.D. 55, when Paul is in the city of Ephesus here, 
Okay, Ephesus here. In the province of Asia, you can see that blue line here. This is the Roman province of Asia. Of course, this is modern-day Turkey today. Geographically, sometimes called Asia Minor. And Asia starts right here. So over, over here, we're in Europe. And over here, we start technically the continent of Asia. But this is the province of Asia. Um, so this letter was written about AD 55 while Paul was in Ephesus doing his, during his third missionary journey. This is Acts chapter 19. Paul was involved in providing relief for the Jerusalem church when he and Barnabas brought a gift from the church in Antioch in around AD 46. So I'm now going back in time here now. So uh, this, this discussion is about relief or offering for the church of Jerusalem or for the people in Judea. Paul has already participated in helping the people in Judea back around A.D. 46, before his first missionary journey. His first missionary journey is, remember, Acts chapter 13, out of the church at Antioch. But, remember this section in Acts chapter 11, Paul got saved in Acts chapter 9, and then after he gets saved, he eventually goes back to his hometown, back to Tarsus, the area of Cilicia, uh, and Syria and Cilicia, he goes back there. He's back there for seven, eight years. We don't know what he's doing, probably evangelizing, maybe starting churches, because later we read about churches in that area. But then Barnabas goes and gets Paul and brings him to Antioch. And they minister in Antioch. And it says, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up through the spirit, predicted the severe famine which spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for their brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem at the end of Acts chapter 11 to bring this gift from the church at Antioch. Then in chapter 12, there's a kind of an interim situation there about Herod, Herod Agrippa and what happened to him. At the end of chapter... And so Paul, and they go from Antioch here down to Jerusalem. And then, at the end of chapter 12, right, then when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission... They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John also, called Mark. And so they come back to Antioch, and then in Acts chapter 13, they will eventually they head out uh, now on their first missionary journey. Take, they'll take John along with them, remember, as they go out. Um, so I say here, uh, Paul was first involved in the providing relief for the Jerusalem church when he and Barnabas brought a gift from the church at Antioch in around AD 46. This visit is described in some detail in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, which was written in AD 49. So <clears throat> Paul goes on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and 14. He establishes churches in the Roman province of Galatia. Actually, they they go, if you remember, they leave 
Antioch, they go to Cyprus, and they go up in here, and they go up into the province of Galatia. And uh, this is described later by Paul, after Paul makes that visit, that first missionary journey, he establishes church in Galatia, he comes back to Jerusalem, and at the end of Acts 14 is when he writes his first epistle, the epistle to the Galatians. And in that epistle, he describes this uh, visit he made in Acts chapter 11 that we've been just talking about where he and Barnabas went there. He describes it like this. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem this time with Barnabas. That's what we just read in Acts chapter 11. That was that first visit of Paul there. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. Remember that Agabus? Agabus stood up and said, hey, there's going to be this famine. And so the people at the church of Antioch said, we're going to help the people in Jerusalem and so forth. I met privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. As for those who were held in high esteem, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. James, Cephas, and John gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So Paul uh, goes to, and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 11, come back in chapter 12, and we read about it here, and Paul just says, uh, they asked we continue to remember Paul is continuing to remember. That's what this is about. This is later in life now. This is Paul in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. But he's getting another offering ready from the Gentile churches, not from just Antioch, but from the churches he's established to take back to Jerusalem. Um, Paul remarks. Paul remarks that uh, that visit he that in that visit he agreed. He agreed with the leaders of Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem church, that the Gentile churches under Paul's supervision would continue to remember the poor. Um, which Paul says, this very thing I had been eager to do all along. Having established churches in the province of the eastern part of the Roman Empire, Galatia, Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia, Paul is laying plans to evangelize the western part of the empire, as he says in Romans. So, Paul has been on, he's on his third missionary journey. His first journey took him to the province of Galatia, the southern part. Acts 13 and 14 establishes churches in Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Derby, Lystra, so forth. Um, on his second missionary journey, <clears throat> he comes up to Troas, he gets the Macedonian call, he establishes churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, he comes to Athens and Corinth, this is Achaia, see the line right there? There's Macedonia, here's Achaia, so Paul establishes churches there, and now he's in Ephesus. On his third missionary journey, he comes up and goes to Ephesus. Um, actually, on his second missionary journey when he left, he went across here to Ephesus and left Aquila and Priscilla, came back to Jerusalem, comes back to Antioch. On his third missionary journey, he comes here and stays in Ephesus for three years. That's where he's at right now. 
So Paul says, I've sort of finished evangelizing the East. This is area of Cilicia and Syria, and Paul has, there's churches mentioned in the book of Acts here, so Paul feels like that's been evangelized. This has, this has. So Paul went, Paul's strategy was to go to the bigger cities, the larger places probably, establish the gospel, establish churches, and then let those people evangelize from out there. Paul describes himself as a missionary pioneer. He goes to places where the gospel has not been preached. He's going to new areas. So now he says, I've kind of finished here in the eastern part of the empire. I've kind of, we've got that pretty well covered. So he says in Romans 15, now he's writing, we're looking at 1 Corinthians. He's writing 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. He's going to write Romans in just a few months because he's going to go back to Corinth. He's writing to Corinth, but he's going to go back to Corinth and he's going to write Romans from there. And this is what he's going to say. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Now, Illyricum is this area right here in this area. This would be Albania, old Yugoslavia up here. Now, we don't actually, the book of Acts doesn't actually say he went up in there, but he says here he did. So he, he must have done something up in there. So I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel of Christ was not known. So I wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. That's why I have often been hindered from coming to you. So the problem with Rome is Rome already has a church. Paul didn't establish a church in Rome. It's already been there. We don't know if it was established by people on the day of Pentecost who were there in Rome or people, other disciples who were saved and went to Rome. There's already a church there. But now there's no more place for me to work in these regions. I've kind of evangelized the eastern part of the empire. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. Paul sees Rome as the new Antioch, the new place, his home church, after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem and to serve the Lord's people for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people of Jerusalem. That's what we're reading about right here. So, um, Paul um, is thinking about Rome here and then moving west, going into Spain, the western part of the Roman Empire, and so forth. I uh, say before he departs for the west, he plans to return to Jerusalem to a, deliver a benevolence offering from the churches he had established. All right, <clears throat> let's look at the collection for the Lord's people, the time and method of the collection, 16, 1 and 2. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. The fact that Paul does not signify whom this collection is for argues he had previously solicited a contribution from the Corinthian church. We know from Romans, it is for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. We read that in Romans 15, 26. However, the church still had questions about the offering and so mentioned them in their letter to Paul. The word translated collection is used in documents from Paul's day to refer to financial contributions and especially for engaging in collections for sacred purposes. 
We learn from Romans 15, 26 through 27 that Paul hoped that the gift would strengthen the bond between the Gentile and Jewish communities, and that would demonstrate the Christian unity transcended ethnic barriers. Remember, he says, the Macedonian Achaia, Gentiles, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among God's people in Jerusalem, Jews. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to these Jews, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, this sounds like Romans uh, chapter uh, 9 and 10 and 11, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in material blessings also. So, uh, next paragraph. The Galatians churches refers to the churches in Antioch of Pisidia, uh, Iconium, Derby, and Lystra that Paul found on his first missionary journey we talked about. So Paul and Barnabas go from Antioch to Cyprus, Salamis to Paphos, and then they travel up here to uh, um, Pamphylia and then on to the province of Galatia. And Paul establishes churches in those particular areas. 16.2. <clears throat> on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Paul now repeats the instructions that he had given to the Galatian churches. The first day of every week was not the Sabbath, that's Saturday, but Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection. Christians began to gather together to celebrate on Sunday sometime soon after that. So we read in the New Testament, you know, places where Christians gathered, even the early disciples, right after the resurrection, right after the... On that evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors opened, and Jesus came and stood. So after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to them. They were gathering on the first day of the week, the evening of the first day of the week. This is true in Acts chapter 20. This is, uh, we're, we're in Acts chapter 19. In first, we're, that's where Paul is writing 1 Corinthians. But later, uh, Paul will travel over to Corinth, and then he'll come back the same way he came. He'll stop in Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. <clears throat> On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking at midnight. So Paul... Uh, speaks to them on the first day of the week. That's when these Christians met, on the first day of the week. We don't know what this seven days about. We could speculate. We could speculate that Paul got there on the wrong... He got there, you know, on a Monday, and he had to wait till Sunday. Well, you know, I don't. we don't know why he waited seven days, but he had, you know, he, he may, might have done that. He might have gone on the wrong day. But the point is, they're meeting here on Sunday. Um... The mention of the first day of every week, along with the purpose that when I come, no collections will have to be made, suggests that the setting aside of money would not be just the setting apart within one's own possessions, but the setting aside of money by presenting it to the leaders of the church. Otherwise, it would not matter which day a person chose to set money aside. 
and collections would not need to be made upon Paul's arrival, would still need to be made. So it seems like, it doesn't say here, but it seems like this money would somehow be given to the church because Paul says, I don't want to have any collections made, and I want you to do it on the first day of the week. This is the day they met together. We know in the early church, you know, when they gave some money, they put it in the hands of the church or the church leaders. Uh, in the very early church, there were no needy persons among them from time to time. Those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money for, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone who had need. So it was the sort of the church leadership. Now, we don't have apostles today, but we have church leaders. Uh, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, uh, owned a field, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing, but remember they got involved in some deception there. So that's the precedent that we have. The amount to be given is in keeping with your income. In speaking about this same offering in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, there Paul says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. No one is exempted from giving, since Paul exhorts each one of the Corinthians to participate. What about the method of distribution? Verses 16, 3, and 4. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Paul explains how their financial gift will be brought to Jerusalem. It's a sign of the church's autonomy that they were to choose their own representatives to carry the gift to Jerusalem. Paul will write letters of introduction for them when he comes to Corinth. Such letters of introduction or commendation were a regular part of business dealings in the ancient world. Uh, I just cite an example here. Remember in Acts 15, after the Jerusalem Council, when they decide Gentiles don't have to keep the law and be circumcised, they send a letter and uh, they send it out and they give it to the Apostle Paul so he can carry it to the Gentile churches and tell them, these Judaizers who are telling you that you have to be circumcised and keep the law, they're wrong. And they write it as a kind of a commendation. With them, they sent the following letter. The Apostles and the Elders to your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization, disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. So this is kind of a letter of commendation to indicate to the gen this this is our decision, and Paul and Barnabas are bringing this kind of thing. So Paul says, I'll write letters to the Jerusalem leaders for you, and you can take that with your money and take it to Jerusalem 
And if it's possible, I may go with you. I'm not sure at this point, Paul says, if I'm going to go or not. Um, Paul probably thought it wise not to take charge of what might be a large sum of money. These would be coins. A large sum could be more easily carried by more than one individual. These representatives would ensure the integrity of the matter. Well, the travel plans, Paul's and Timothy, 16, 5 through 11. Back in chapter 4, when Paul was asserting his authority as their spiritual father, he told the Corinthians that he had sent Timothy to Corinth already to remind them of his way of life in Christ Jesus and that he himself would be coming very soon. Because he had just spoken again of his definite coming, when I arrive, he says in 16.3, to finalize the arrangements for the Jerusalem offering, Paul now explained some details of his travel plans in getting to Corinth. He also adds a word about the coming of Timothy and how he should be received. For now, Paul is in Ephesus, where he plans to stay until Pentecost which suggests Paul is writing this letter in early spring. He will not come directly to Corinth by ship, excuse me, he will not come to come directly to Corinth by ship across the Aegean by, by way of Macedonia. So he'll say in verse 5, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. So Paul, as he's laying out his travel plans here, he says, I'm just not going to leave Ephesus and go over. I'm going to uh, leave Ephesus and go to Macedonia. And then I'm going to come to see you. Uh, and then, you know, go on to Jerusalem. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey whenever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I, so he's saying, you know, I could just come over quickly, but I'd like to spend some time with you. And I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits so Paul will take the overland route through Macedonia to get to Corinth. His purpose in going through Macedonia is obviously to visit the churches he established in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So, you know, this is what he's really going to do. He's going to go over to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then come to Corinth because he wants to visit those churches that he established in Macedonia. Paul had personally not been back to these churches since founding them. So that's about four years earlier. It's been a while since Paul has been there. He probably plans to spend late spring and summer in Macedonia. Sea travel ceased in the winter months because of the weather. So if Paul cannot finish his ministry in Corinth by late September, he may spend the winter with them says, I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter. So if I can't finish everything, you know, by September or October, I'll just stay uh, there. One of the, yes? I'm just kind of amazed by all the traveling. My gosh, there's no jet planes. <laughs> I know. Any, 
he moved around, this Paul guy. Yeah, he did, didn't he? And to think, you know, four years or whatever, but I'm just kind of amazed. I know it. I know it. Yeah, I know. We amazed. Uh, you know, I mean, I was just, you know, the thing that comes to my mind. Just think about soldiers from World War Two. Think about British soldiers who left home in 1939 and sometimes didn't get back to 1946. That's a long time not to be back home, you know, seven years. And so the idea, you know, of us being disconnected for that seems impossible for us. It seems barbaric, doesn't it? Yeah, but that's the way it was. Um. I say Paul emphasizes that he would like to spend a good deal of time with them and not make only a passing visit. Probably because he believes the church has a number of issues that need addressing. The verb help me on my journey is a technical term providing someone with food, money, and traveling companions so as to ensure a safe and successful arrival at their destination. What that destination would be, Paul does not say. Only whenever I go. So he's just saying right now, whenever I leave. Now remember, now let's get the point straight here. He does go to Jerusalem. But right now he's just said in the first part of chapter 16, uh, I'm going to come and I'm going to appoint, we're going to appoint, you're going to appoint some men to take this money to Jerusalem and I may go with them. But he's not saying I'm going with them right here. He's just saying, uh, I want you to help me on my way. We know he's thinking about Spain because we see that later on in Romans 15. So he, he may be thinking, I'm going to go to Corinth. We're going to get this offering sent off and maybe I'll just head on to Spain. Maybe that's what he's thinking here. That does not, that's not what happened. But we know from the book of Romans that he will, which he will write from Corinth when he arrives there in a few months that he wished to take up a new ministry in the western part of the empire with Rome at his base. We read that, Romans 15, again. I've been longing many years to visit you. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. So Paul's talking. He's, he's writing here Romans from Corinth, and he's, he still has that desire to go to Spain. Verse 8, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Pentecost is the Greek name for the Jewish Feast of Weeks, one of the three primary Jewish festivals, along with Passover and booze or tabernacles. Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover. It was an agricultural festival that came to be associated with the promises of divine blessing and restoration. Christians came to associate it with the blessing of the Holy Spirit after the experience recorded in Acts 2, 1-33, which took place on the day of Pentecost. In this context, Pentecost is probably a reference to a season, like we speak of Christmas. I'm going to come see you at Christmas. We mean the Christmas season, rather than to the actual feast. For Paul, the season of Pentecost means that summer would have arrived, which would be the most favorable time for travel by sea. The open door images refer to the positive reception of the gospel at Ephesus. Paul uses the expression of an open door later in 2 Corinthians 2.12, speaking of ministry opportunities in the city of Troas, which he traveled to upon leaving Corinth, and also in his letter to Colossians, asking that God would open a door for the gospel in Rome. 
Though Paul sees great possibilities for the gospel ministry in Ephesus, he indicates that he has already encountered opposition. This will culminate in the episode with the riot instigated by the silversmith in Acts 19 that we talked about. So Paul is in Acts 19. He's writing this letter, but that incident with the silversmith happens at the very end of his time there. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. So Paul at first mentions Timothy's trip to Corinth back in chapter 4, verse 17. He said, I'm sending Timothy to you. Why Timothy would have something to fear from the Corinthians is not clear. But it may relate to Paul's own rocky relationship with the church, which is always under the surface of 1 Corinthians and comes out strongly in 2 Corinthians, where we learn that there is a direct challenge to Paul's apostolic authority in chapters 10 through 13. From what we read in 2 Corinthians, which was written from Macedonia a few months after Paul left Corinth, Paul did not end up following his travel plans he laid out in verse 5. Remember, those travel plans that we looked at, that he just talked about there in verse 5 is, I'm going to come see you, but I'm going to Macedonia first. And then I'm going to come stay with you. I'd like to spend some time. Maybe I'll have to spend winter there. Instead, what we here's what we know did happen, kind of jumping ahead here in Paul's life. Instead, Paul decided to make two visits to Corinth along with his visit to Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians 1, 15 through 16, he lays out a different itinerary. So this was his original itinerary, but he gets up here to Macedonia, and there he writes 2 Corinthians. And uh, he lays out a different itinerary. He says, because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then have you send me on my way to Judea. So, Paul, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, has changed his mind. Now, I don't know what's caused him to change his mind. Maybe you heard about some imminent problems at Corinth that needed his attention right away. So, when we get to 2 Corinthians, Paul will say, I've decided to visit you twice. I wanted, he said, this is what I wanted. He actually doesn't do this either. <laughs> but he tells them, this was, this was what my plan, my next plan was. My next plan was, I was going to come to Corinth and then go to Philippi, go to Macedonia, come back to Corinth so you get a double visit and then have you send me on my way to Judea. So now he's definitely going to Judea. Um, but, so this is his second itinerary that he mentions in 2 Corinthians, but this didn't happen either. But when Paul got to Corinth, it turned out that well, it turned out to be what Paul called a painful visit. He says in 2 Corinthians 2 1, 
So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. It was painful because some person or persons in the church attacked Paul, challenged his authority, so Paul immediately returned to Ephesus. So, Paul goes across to Corinth, and then he's supposed to go to Macedonia and come back, but things are so bad that he immediately returns to Ephesus. Something happened. An incident that he talks about in 2 Corinthians, this painful visit, someone challenged his authority. So Paul immediately returns. Um... Um, then Paul's actual itinerary is he goes to Troas he goes to Philippi and then he comes to Corinth so this is his actual itinerary he makes a painful visit over to Corinth he comes back to Ephesus and then the riot happens in the, in the theater there. Paul leaves and goes, stops at Troas. We know in 2 Corinthians mentions this. He goes to Macedonia and finally comes to Corinth in Acts chapter 20. And he stays there for three months. And there he writes that letter to the Romans that we've been reading from. So this visit, this painful visit, is not mentioned in the book of Acts, but seems to be required by the data in 2 Corinthians. Paul refers to his next coming as his third one. After the Demetrius riot, Paul leaves Ephesus following this itinerary. Troas, Macedonia, the place of writing of 2 Corinthians, and then on to Corinth. So it's a little complex about all his travel plans here. But this is actually what happens. He goes to Corinth, bad visit, painful visit. I didn't include here, but actually Paul writes another letter that's not in the canon called the severe letter that he refers to in 2 Corinthians. Most people think we have four letters to the Corinthians because 1 Corinthians 5, 9 talks about a letter before 1 Corinthians. He writes 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians talks about another letter in between 1 and 2. And then he writes 2 Corinthians. So this is his actual itinerary. And he goes to Corinth, Acts chapter 20. Romans 15, 26 suggests that Paul and the Corinthians got things patched up since the Corinthians participated in the offering for Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia, Paul is writing from Corinth to the Romans. And he says, Macedonia and, and Corinth and the surrounding area were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. And Paul is... On his way, he says. I'm taking that back to Jerusalem, and then I hope to come to you. Now, it didn't work out quite what Paul thought he would, because he got arrested in Jerusalem, got sent to Caesarea, spent two years in prison, and then he got hauled off to Rome as a prisoner. He got to Rome, but not, not exactly like he thought he would get there. At this point, Paul may have feared that Timothy might not be well received, since Paul knew that the feelings uh, against himself in this church were strong and that it would almost certainly overflow toward Paul's man, Timothy. Paul explains that Timothy should have nothing to fear. He is carrying on the work of the Lord. 
But in case they do not understand, Paul adds a word of warning. No one then should treat him with contempt. Who the brothers are who will accompany Timothy back to Ephesus, remember we read, send him, when, send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Um, who these brothers are, uh, we don't know. They could be those who will be delivering the letter to the Corinthians or perhaps Timothy has traveling companions with him since to travel alone in the ancient world was rather dangerous. One final note then, the coming of Apollos, 1612. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to do to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Verse 12 begins with the final now about in this letter, indicating that what Paul writes is again in response to their letter to him. In this case, a question concerning Apollos. Apollos had gone to Corinth shortly after Paul's first brief visit to Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19 uh, and his three-year stay uh, in Acts 19. In the first major, of, first major section of 1 Corinthians, the problem Paul tackled was with the division in the church, 110 through 421. Remember that? You were back with us then. We were talking about divisions in the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am. I, I follow Cephas. Jesus is my man. You know. You know. Everybody had their hero here. Uh, later in three four, Paul adds, "For when one says I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings?" While it seems clear that Apollos himself was not in any way as an instigator of these problems, his high-profile presence had some unfortunate effects. So, I'm sad. It may be doubtful that Paul himself would have initiated a request for Apollos to return to Corinth. In other words, Apollos had gone there to help the people. They had rallied around him and other leaders. It may be that Paul, it seems unlikely that Paul would say, let's send him back, stir up more of these issues, though it's not Apollos' fault. Therefore, it seems likely that in their letter to Paul, the Corinthians had requested Apollos' return. Since the Corinthians wish his return, and since Paul has no issue with Paulus personally, he indicates that he had urged Apollos to return. So it's not that I'm just saying, I don't think Paul would have initiated this probably given the problems that it caused the first time. But it's not, Paulus didn't do anything wrong, and if they warn him, then okay, I urged him, I'll urge him to come um, with the brothers. But probably, uh, probably meaning these first three in verse 17, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. But Apollos rejected the Corinthians' request, and I'm, I'm surmising here, possibly because he did not want to be part of the internal strife being carried on partly in his own name. He may have been aware, he's aware of this from Paul, what's happening. He may have decided he doesn't want to be a part of this particular problem. That's all supposition. I don't know why all that took place, but that's, I think that's a possibility. All right, some concluding remarks here, 16, 13 through 24. A general exhortation, first of all. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, 
do everything in love. Paul begins his concluding remarks with five moral exhortations. Because they are short and without immediate context, they are difficult to interpret precisely. Be on your guard, stand firm, you know. The first four bring to mind the image of a soldier and are the kinds of commands a commanding officer might give to his troops upon entering into battle. The Corinthians should be on their guard, maybe against corrosive influences like those leading them away from the truth of bodily resurrection. Instead, they are to stand firm in the faith while always being courageous and strong. As far as their relationship with one another, they should do everything in love. This command obviously recalls the emphasis of chapter 13. There's a commendation here of Stephanus. You know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Stephanus's household were some of Paul's first converts, first converts in Achaia. Remember, Achaia is the province here that Corinth is in, the capital. In fact, Paul had personally baptized uh, Stephanus, we learn in 116. Both here and in 116, the reference to the household of Stephanus, Paul says he baptized the household of Stephanus, probably indicates a man of wealth whose household included immediate family members as well as slaves and freedmen who worked for Stephanus. This was a common way that large, wealthy you know, people had had households, Romans, and so forth. They were an exemplary household who devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. This strong recommendation of Stephanus may suggest that he had been loyal to Paul during the ongoing tensions with the church. Stephanus was probably among the leadership in the church, since Paul urges submission to him and others who follow his example of laboring in the gospel ministry. We learn from verse 17 that Stephanus has come to Ephesus probably bearing a letter from the Corinthian, Corinthian church. From the Corinthian church. Thus, Stephanus may have been Paul's primary source of knowledge of many of the Corinthians' problems. Verse 17, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus were apparently the bearers of a letter to Paul from the Corinthian church. Boy, got all kinds of problems here. Uh, they may have come to Ephesus on business and were able to carry the letter. Stephanus was previously singled out in verses 15 and 16, but we know nothing of the other two men. The name Fortunatus means blessed or lucky and is a common Latin name among slaves and freedmen. Achaicus means one who is from Achaia, which is also a name given to slaves or taken Taken, supposed to be by freedmen. I need a proofreader here. <laughs> this uh, has led to the suggestion that these two were part of Stephanus's household. The phrase supplied what was lacking from you occurs with almost identical wording in Philippians 2.30. The English translation gives the impression that Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for some failing. 
But the actual idea is that these three men supplied by their arrival or presence what had been lacking, which was the Corinthians' presence. I know it's not clear in your English translation, but it seems to be fairly clear. What Paul is saying, that he had not been in Corinth for some time, three or four years, and the coming of these men made up for that absence. In verse 18, Paul explains, for that these men had in fact refreshed Paul's spirit. They deserve recognition, Paul says, because they were the kind of Christians who not only were able to refresh the spirit of Paul, but they also had the kind of ministry among their fellow believers in Corinth. You also, they refreshed you. These men deserve recognition. Paul's probably commending and attempting to strengthen the position of leaders loyal to him and his church gospel. These men will probably be carrying Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians, back to the church. So he wants the church to know that these leaders can be trusted to properly interpret and apply his teachings upon their return to Corinth. <coughs> Greetings from others in Asia, 16, 19, and 20. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send, uh, greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. The churches in the province of Asia included the church at Ephesus, but probably a number of others possibly started by Paul or his associates. During his three-year stay in Ephesus, Paul taught at a lecture hall in the city for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, according to Acts 19.10. So here is Ephesus. And there's lots of other cities there. As I say here, we know uh, uh, we know that Paul's co-worker Epaphras began the church in Colossae. So Paul says in the Colossians letter that you heard the gospel from uh, co-worker Epaphras. Um, Paul mentions churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis in Colossians 4.13. So he mentions Laodicea. I don't have Hierapolis on there. It's close. Right in this valley. It's called the Lycus Valley right here. Um, the book of Revelation mentions a number of others that probably trace their founding back to Paul's ministry. So it seems kind of likely that Paul spends three years in Ephesus. He's teaching at this lecture hall that apparently he rents, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And he's you know, got the uh, Ephesian Baptist Theological Seminary there. <laughs> and uh, he is teaching there. We know Epaphras, you know, is responsible to the church. So people come into Ephesus, they get saved, they hear Paul, they go back. So maybe that's how these other churches possibly, you know, and we see in Revelation, would have gotten their start and so forth. Paul went to the major city and that let others do the work there spreading the gospel. Aquila and Priscilla uh, would be the well-known to the Corinthians since they used to live in Corinth and they were the initial co-workers in the founding of the church. Remember, uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. This is his uh, second missionary journey. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla. Plus, Claudius said, I ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. 
And after that ministry in uh, in Corinth, Paul leaves. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria. He was ultimately going to back to Jerusalem, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. They stopped off at Ephesus where he left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So Paul has a short little time in Ephesus in Acts 18, 18 and 19, 20. But it's Acts 19 where he comes back and spends the three years there. So he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. So they're there. There's a house, a church that meets in their house. Um, verse 20. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Since Paul had just said in verse 19 that the churches send you greetings, the brothers and sisters here may be a reference to Paul's co-workers and traveling companions. The holy kiss reflects the common mode of greeting in Paul's day. We see it in other epistles. It was a physical expression that conveyed the idea of a welcoming greeting. In the Christian community, it had no romantic overtones, but was a holy kiss. As we discussed in conjunction with the head covering in chapter 11, this is a culturally relative command that does not require we duplicate it exactly in our culture. Unless you're a teenage boy and girl, then you'll want to duplicate this. I'm just joking. Uh, so we don't have to duplicate that exactly. We are required to be welcoming to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in some ways appropriate to our culture. Obviously, in some cultures, they still do kissing on the cheek. And so, you know, you've seen that in other countries. All right. Paul's final greetings and farewell. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Up to this point, the actual inscribing of this letter was left to someone else, possibly Sosthenes, who's mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 1, is with Paul. Paul often used a scribe, technically called an amanuensis, to actually take down his dictation. In Romans 16.22, the amanuensis is named Atertius, who wrote this letter, wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Sometimes, as we see here, also in other places, Paul picks up the pen so that his readers can see his own handwriting, presumably to authenticate the letter. This is sort of like adding a signature to a type letter in our day. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed, come Lord. This language from Paul seems rather strong. Cursed is the Greek word anathema, which has come into English with the same idea. Paul uses it of those who would pervert the gospel of grace in Galatia. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach the gospel other than, than the one we have preached, let them be anathema, he says, under God's curse. Paul is probably warning those at Corinth who are in danger of departing from the truth. He has already issued these kinds of warnings previously in his letter. The phrase, come Lord, is the Aramaic expression Maranatha. It was used by early Christians as a prayer for the Lord's return. Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. The standard goodbye in letters of Paul's day was a single Greek word that can be translated something like farewell. We see it in Acts 15, 29. Paul, however, closes all his letters with grace, with a grace benediction. The expression of his love's 
might seem amazing in light of the contents of this letter, but it reveals his true heart and concern for the Corinthian church. That's it for 1 Corinthians. We have one more week because Pastor Ken is still working on uh, Master Plan for Life. And next week, next Sunday, is the last week for Master Plan for Life. So next week we'll do something on 1 Corinthians. We'll do something surrounding 1 Corinthians 2.14. But I want to talk about this topic. Does God speak to Christians today? Think about that question. And come back and be ready to defend yes or no. Is there a sense in which God speaks to Christians? Or should we say that kind of language? Or... We'll talk about it next month, 1 Corinthians 2.14. So we'll meet next week uh, for our final 1 Corinthians thing while Pastor Ken finishes that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study it. Give us, Father, understanding and motivate us, Father, to live according to what we have read and understood. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.